0: fear, the one and only Tucker Carlson, he's here, right here, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tucker Out, I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And this is a podcast where we talk about new money poser, Tucker Carlson. How you doing, Tyler? What? Uh, a
2: little tired. I uh, was
1: late to recording, as you're aware, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Because <laughs> I am always 100% on time as we record an episode to release on Wednesday. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, Tyler, here's the deal. Well, before I tell you what the deal is, do we have anybody to thank?
2: Um, yes, we have uh, one person to thank. Uh, one person increased their pledge, so... um. Ja Bok Choi says more drugs, more bikes uh, increased to the sworn enemy tier. So thank you very much. Um, I don't know if it's Ja or if it's Ya, uh, but Ja Bok Choi, thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you very much, Ja Bok Choi. So uh, here's the deal, Tyler. We have a lot of dark shit on the horizon. So uh, coming up next week, we're going to be talking about Curtis Yarvin. Uh, menchus mold bug and he, he, here's the thing i uh, the reason why we haven't recorded the, that episode yet is because courtesy ervin's blog goes all the way back to 2007 and every time i think i've read enough of it i find something else and end up reading way too much more of it and now i i know more than frankly any person should about menchus mold bug <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it was interesting to me because in their interview, Tucker says that he's he reads his work. So, as I'm reading things, I'm just assuming Tucker has read it. And it, it, it's been a very interesting experience. That's going to be a, an interesting episode. Um, and then we've also got the Charles Murray stuff that we're going to do. And Tucker recently uh, did an episode of his podcast called Framing Michael Flynn. Which I've not yet watched, but I think that might be worth talking about at some point. He was framed, was he? Framed. He was framed. It was a frame job. Um okay. And Very then normal uh, country we live in. <laughs> and then in addition to that, um, our Glenn Beck episode is gonna be soon. And we also have this uh this Soros thing looming. So what I'm getting at is that we have a lot of heavier shit lined up for the weeks ahead and um it's my birthday so i decided that for my birthday i wasn't going to deal with any dark shit this week so we're talking about tucker's recent interview on the megan kelly show fun with megan kelly (laughs) (laughs) fun with megan kelly and uh this interview it's sort of maybe a backdoor tragedy of the bowtie three because there is a lot that we learn about Tucker in this interview. I don't know if like Megan Kelly is just a really good interviewer or if it's because he is comfortable with her or what. But Tucker talks about things about his life in this interview that I- I've watched probably over a 100 hours of Tucker Carlson giving interviews. And I've ne- this is the first time I've ever heard him talk about some of this stuff. So we're gonna have some fun with that, but first, let's jump into one of the most frequent threads on this show, which is that uh, Tucker and all his friends are being persecuted.
3: Can I just start with um, breaking news today on our moral betters over at CNN? Um, I did a whole segment yesterday with my legal team. I love Mark and Arthur. And we talked about Don Lamont and, um, the, he's being sued for sexual assault by a guy who says <laughs> no. lemon fondled himself and rubbed his hands all over the guy's face. I mean, Arthur Idala was saying that's worth five million. I don't care. Whatever he's asking for, it's too little. Um, exactly. And then now today the news breaks that Chris Cuomo is being accused of sexually harassing a woman several years ago when he was at ABC. His boss, Shelly Ross, has gone on the record in a New York Times op-ed saying I, we went to a party. I was no longer his boss. I had just shifted off the show or he had shifted off the show, whatever. And he greeted her and he gave her a big bear hug and he grabbed her ass. He squeezed her ass and then like was horrified to see her husband sitting. <laughs> <laughs> I Tucker, you can't make it up. These... I don't even know if I would have touched the story. Right? It's like it sounds like a, a Nimrod stupid ass thing to do. Um yeah. you know, it's dumb. And and he apologized for it. It's the, it's clear he did it because she's got him in writing admitting yeah. that he that he did something bad. He's sorry. Um, but I'm so sick of these guys every night coming out attacking regular Americans for being awful because of whatever, you know, some innocuous comment or their immutable characteristics or whatever it is. Meanwhile, you know, these are terrible people behind the scenes.
1: Right off the bat, it's about like our moral betters over at CNN. Like it, it, these are two millionaires complaining about how everybody is mean to them. Like, oh, they say we're bad people, but they're doing bad stuff, too. So. Weird absolved. Really, really rich of megan Kelly to
2: pretend like she and Tucker Carlson are regular Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like, what are they? I don't, I don't, I don't watch CNN, so I don't, I don't know that much. But from what I have seen, like, they're not coming out and like attacking people
1: generally. <laughs> the 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 tone of of the the mainstream media is not like look at all these dirty regular Americans and their their stupid patriotism <laughs> like yeah they're just it's 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 all made up and i don't i haven't had a chance to like think all the way through this but i don't think it's like nothing that these are the same people who take things like getting kicked off twitter so personally that like it, they, they hear these critiques as rebukes of their moral character every single time. Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: also, uh, good to hear that Megyn Kelly also doesn't know how to pronounce Don Lemon's name. Um, <laughs> oh, right. like, Tucker Carlson and Megyn Kelly are massive public figures. Like, you are signing up for criticism if you choose to be a massive public figure <laughs>
1: so fuck off <laughs> <laughs> yeah like I'm I mean we have what like we reach liberally speaking maybe four digits of worth of people per episode on the show yeah and uh, we get we get some hate mail sometimes and I'm not shocked by that <laughs> it's not like It's going to happen when you're putting, putting ideas out into the public and these, for, for being such defenders of free speech, they are so thin skinned about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tucker does not become any thicker skinned here, but he does do a whole lot of projecting. Well, the whole thing is so Freudian.
4: That's I think that exactly what you said. I think that every single day, I mean, if you're sort of happy with yourself and your relationships with other people, if you have a happy marriage and a cohesive family, and your coworkers like you, the people you're in charge of respect you. You know, it gives you a different vantage. If, by contrast, you're tormented like a character in an Edgar Allan Poe story by your own sins, you know what a completely rotten person you are, and your whole life is devoted to creating this facade to protect that truth from being known then you're apt to lash out against other people. That's why they always accuse you of exactly what they themselves are doing. It's unerring. It's like every single time. And all of this grows out of the fact that these are super damaged, unhappy, rotten people. how they get in positions of power is my question.
1: How indeed. Words Tucker
2: Carlson doesn't understand. Freudian? What about anything he just said was Freudian? <laughs> Yeah. Also, uh, Tucker, have you
1: looked in the mirror Lately? In an interview he did a couple of years ago I think it was in 2019 with Dave Rubin um, Tucker actually said that he generally doesn't use mirrors Because he doesn't want to get fixated on how he looks <laughs> I, I like to think That if you ever held a mirror up to Tucker Carlson They would get caught in a loop Of that just dumb fucking scowl until they simultaneously melted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then I I really don't
2: like this. um, His argument is, well, they're being mean to me, so I'm justified in lashing out against them thing that he's doing. I don't like that at all.
1: Yeah, and like, it's that kind of mentality that's led to people getting doxxed on his show. (laughs) Yeah power imbalances it seems as though they're completely imperceptible to to tucker and i think it's more that he cherishes those imbalances and seeks to protect them but he that's certainly not how he's going to paint his experience of the world going forward in this interview here he he talks about the value in his own humiliation
3: Mm hmm. How did you wind up? So you had a powerful dad in the media industry whose name was well known. Chris Cuomo had a powerful dad in the politics industry whose name was well known. How did how did you wind up normal, successful with a nice family? And he winds up being accused of stuff like this out there lecturing everybody night with his stupid muscle building videos. He's obviously got something going on. I don't know what his problem is, but there's not so there's something not right. And I you can't root it in being the son of a powerful guy, because that doesn't happen to every son of a powerful guy.
4: No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I, I'm the product of a lot of failures and unhappiness, which, and, you know, suffering, which I think, you know, befalls all of us at some point. I mean, I don't need to tell you, you know, (laughs) unexpected things happen in your life and you either become much improved and you understand yourself more deeply and you're calmer or the opposite happens. You become crazed and nasty. In my case, you know, I struggled for years with drinking too much. I quit 20 years ago. I got fired and completely ran out of money, had to sell my house out from under you know four kids that really changed my view of everything. Um, and then I was in a plane crash 20 years ago next month and And I obviously survived. But, all you know, those are three really bad things. But each one of them completely changed the way I behave. I mean, I don't think I was ever the pig that Chris Cuomo clearly is. But I mean, I, I was a much different person 25 years ago because like Chris Cuomo, you know, I was pretty successful young. I got on TV in my 20s and and I think it made me into kind of a jerk and. The only thing that saved me was failing and being humiliated, like really humiliated, where your neighbors avert their gaze when you pull into the driveway at night kind of thing. Like, everybody hated me.
3: What? When?
4: People do hate me, but but that was just so good for my soul. I mean, it really was the best thing that ever happened to me.
1: Like a modern day
2: Job, he is. Tucker Carlson, calling other people crazed and nasty is fucking ridiculous. (laughs) Tucker was also accused of sexual harassment. So, like, saying he's completely free of anything, I don't know, like, Megan Kelly's like, "How come you turned out to have the same politics as me if <laughs> if you also have this single similarity with Chris Cuomo?" Looks yeah. like he's got
1: more than one similarity. Yeah, it's it's. Like that it's a really dumb framing of this question, too. Like the the, the premise is a false dichotomy. Um but the three things the Tucker listed there that really changed his life. One, um, he used to drink too much and then he quit drinking. I mean, just from like a personal interest perspective, it was interesting hearing him say that because I I've heard him say that he quit drinking because he decided the um the quote he uses is "the pleasant nights weren't worth the unpleasant mornings," so he, like he's he's implied that there was an issue, but that's the first time he said it that plainly. And I mean, good for him. Quitting drink, quitting drinking is good. Yes. Um. Very difficult thing to do. And then uh, his second example was getting fired from MSNBC and having to sell a house from under four kids. Which he's going to talk about this a bit more later in the interview. I don't. I don't know exactly how much of it I cut, but he 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 talks he he mentions having to sell this house a couple of times. It was months ago now, but I I said that one of the threads I wanted to track, um, or a mystery I wanted to solve about Tucker was when he stopped being a libertarian, because even as recently as his MSNBC show, it was all the standard like the government sucks libertarian shit um he he was a fellow with the Cato institute for a while and now he is really he's much more open to kind of the government playing an active role in social life in america and uh he's also like rhetorically just pretty hostile to libertarians and so i wanted to see if i could like figure out when and why that happened and the way that he talks about having to sell this house after he got fired, I wonder if that's not it. Like, I mean, it's the closest thing to economic insecurity he's ever experienced. And it, having a family that you care about, that's that's traumatic. And maybe it, t- taking ownership of that and realizing like, it, hey, shit can just happen. That throws your life into a tailspin. I i i am gonna tend tentative, to tentatively call that thread kind of close to this point because the timeline matches up so i think that might be mystery salt congratulations <laughs> thank you i'm very proud um <laughs> and then third he talks about this plane crash in 2001 i i knew that this had happened like on one of the when i decided to do a tucker carlson podcast i went and read his wikipedia page and uh it gets like one sentence it just says he was involved in a plane crash in 2001 but here he mentioned it he mentions it as a really like transformative experience for his life so i wanted to find a little bit more information about about what happened so it's time for some greta talk tyler (laughs) some what talk some greta talk oh like greta thunberg No, I wish. Um, Although if you Google Greta Talk, all the results are Greta Thunberg. But what I'm talking about (laughs) is a little show on Fox Radio hosted by Greta Van Susteren called Greta Talk. In 2014, Tucker was a guest on Greta Talk, and Greta, she wanted to ask him about this plane crash. Here's how that went.
5: All right, we better move right along. Okay, now the reason, I, one of the reasons I wanted to, you here uh, is to talk about uh, your plane accent. You were in a plane crash.
4: Well, you're the only one who knows that. That's so funny that you know that. Yes, I was, and it was um, it was 13 years ago, last month in uh, October, and I was I had just gone over to um, Pakistan to cross over the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan. This was right after 9/11. And um, I was doing I was working for New York magazine and, and CNN, and I was going to do this story. Anyway, I was flying home from Peshawar, Pakistan to Islamabad, and we we're in a big airbus, big double aisle airbus. What airline? Uh, pakistan international airways that was PIA. a good choice yes it was, a, it was the only <laughs> carrier flying at that point
5: <laughs> i've had a few of those flights oh. where, where you and I, and I always tell myself well if nobody's heard of this airline that's a good sign it's never crashed <laughs> that's how that's how i sit there as i sort of like you know sh- quiver
4: <laughs> is it banned from landing at u.s airports yes it is um, so anyway long story short it, it was uh, almost all afghans on the flight some a few americans um, it was a smoking flight. I'll never forget that. And um, maybe about half an hour before landing, we're over the Arabian Sea. And it turned out, I learned later, a bomb went off on the cargo hold of the flight. No one's ever taken responsibility for it. Never got any explanation for what exactly happened. But the plane just dropped, and the pilot got it under control, attempted to land it. This was about 3.30 in the morning and, um, and wasn't able to. And we wound up uh, sideways in a sand dune. Um, near the Dubai airport.
5: Near the airport or at the airport?
4: Well, we attempted to bring it into the airport. We bounced off whatever surface he attempted to land on. It was dark, so it wasn't exactly clear. Um, this huge shower of sparks, part of the, the wing, the right wing, uh, partly detached from the plane. And then we bounced into these sand dunes. And it was all kind of dramatic in the cabin, as you can imagine. But the hilarious thing was the, not hilarious, but in retrospect, funny, the uh, flight attendants refused to acknowledge there was anything wrong. So we knew the plane was crashing. Obviously that they were like (laughs) struggling to gain altitude and we were going down. I mean, there's no question. People were, all the Gulf Arabs in the, I was in first class were, you know, crying and smoking two Marlboros at once and it was throwing really a a major scene. All the Pashtuns in back were totally resigned to death, which really lets you know that you'd much rather go to war against a Gulf state than you would against (laughs) against the Pashtuns because they are ready to go. And, but I remember asking a flight attendant, they were all male, of course. What's going on? And he said, Oh, everything is fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> everything was demonstrably not fine. So anyway, we, we pull in. The plane's on its side. Um, I hopped up obviously to get off the plane because I had seen sparks and saw the plane was going to burn. And, um, and the guy tried to make me sit back in my seat and I just, ah, out of my way. So I went and I opened the door. The emergency door. The emergency door. The fuselage was twisted. I kicked it open and the slide deployed. And um, scared the hell out of me. The plane was at such a pitch that it was like a straight down shot, um, weirdly for reasons that are too complicated to explain. But my father was actually on the flight with me, and he and I were basically the first ones off. Actually, we let a woman go before us. You said a gentleman. In a head crash. That was, that in a was...
5: gentleman, you, if, if you're in a crash with Tucker, he lets the women go actually, first.
4: Actually, I, I will concede that was my father's demand. Let, yeah. let the lady go first. But anyway, she went. We went off to. Or of maybe
5: the... you wanted to see if it worked. <laughs> you mean, like, push her out to see if it <laughs> worked. And if she didn't go, we'll go out another entrance. It was kind of
4: hairy, actually, going down. It was totally pitch black. We ran to get away from the plane because we thought it was going to blow up. It didn't. And, um, and then we got picked up by an army truck, like almost instantly. It was so surreal. And they put us in the back of the truck and drove us and kind of locked us in this room overnight because they didn't know what was happening. So their instinct is to detain everybody. Um, and then they put us on a B.A. flight, you know, 12 hours later to London. And we never got any explanation or any sense of what happened at all. And it um, the plane is actually now a dive site off that famous hotel in dubai the one with the man-made man-made islands you can dive on it
2: yeah tucker really uh paints himself to be the big hero there doesn't he
1: (laughs) yeah i that that was my first impression as well that tucker is really the protagonist of this plane crash (laughs) yeah (laughs) and the uh here's the thing i do have some um, corroborating evidence that he, Tucker is the one who kicked open the door. Uh, that that evidence comes from Tucker's dad. So, um, but it is th- this was written like literally the day after the crash. Uh, this was a letter his dad wrote for a column in the Washington Post. I, I thought this was really interesting because the the crash happened on October seventeenth, two thousand one. This was published in the Post on the eighteenth. It is a Wednesday morning in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and thought you might like to know our morning drama. They have just reopened the Dubai airport, as our plane from Peshawar, Pakistan Air, flight 231, an airbus with 205 people aboard, including crew, crashed on a runway at 2 a.m. this morning. No kidding. It has taken a while to clean up the runway. It was quite an ending to an interesting, but less dangerous, week along the Afghan border. We are fine. There were two other Westerners aboard, a CNN engineer based in Hong Kong, and a political officer from the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad. Otherwise, everyone was Mideastern, most in native garb, turbans, etc. There was some kind of serious problem with the landing gears who came in over the Arabian Sea. It felt as if we hit something in the air, though I can't imagine what it could have been. But everyone was frightened, and we were wobbly as we came in for, for a fast landing, and then we hit hard on, and the plane went out of control. Tucker and I were in the very front. The wheels seemed to collapse and the right wing hit the runway at a couple hundred miles an hour. Flames and huge billows of smoke shot up along the windows and an engine on the right wing fell off. And that wing itself collapsed as we spun sideways. The cockpit of the front of the plane seemed to bend, and I thought it was going to to come apart. A huge crack appeared in the fuselage next to the forward door. We skidded off into sand, which probably saved us from a fatal fire. Later, one of the firemen said, You were lucky you didn't all die. The Pakistani air crew was awful, confused, and totally unhelpful. It was Tucker who threw open the exit door by the cockpit. I've always wondered what it was like to go down those chutes. It was pretty great, actually, on a couple of levels. Everyone ran off away from the plane in the sand. The middle emergency door wouldn't open. The back of the plane was crowded, and people there only had one exit. All the exits on the right side of the plane were unusable. Fire trucks arrived pretty fast so much so that many of the letter passengers sliding on the chutes were soaked to the foam. That's it. Thought you'd be amused. So it, it, it does seem that Tucker did throw open the door, which, you know, cool, that's the story I'd tell you. Yeah, of course.
2: <laughs> Why wouldn't
1: you, right? What did jump out to me was that there is no mention in there of it being a bomb. He just said that something went wrong in the landing gear. Um. So I did a little bit more digging. And I found uh, the entry for this plane crash on the Aviation Safety Networks website. Here it describes the crash of Flight PK two thirty one. There's a narrative section on the crash report, and it it just reads: Flight PK two thirty one from Islamabad via Peshawar veered off the side of the runway at Dubai after the right hand main gear collapses at touchdown. The aircraft skidded and eventually came to rest in sand fifty meters from the runway. The aircraft has sustained damage to its right wing structure and its number two engine, which partly broke off the wing. So that's pretty succinct, but still no mention of a bomb. Um, Yeah, there is a disclaimer at the bottom that says this information is not prevented as the Flight Safety Foundation or the Aviation Safety Network's opinion as to the cause of the accident. It is preliminary and is based on the facts as they are known at this time. Um, now as far as I can tell this website is updated pretty regularly so I can't say definitively whether or not this was a bomb um, if anybody can point me toward an- an- anything that indicates that I would be interested um I'm not ready to call Tucker a liar here but it's interesting that I haven't been able to find corroboration of that detail yeah I can
2: imagine a world where authorities would want to hide that it was a bomb and not tell you but if That were the case, I would be surprised if Tucker found out it was a bomb and no one else did,
1: yeah. And it's just it, it does make the whole thing seem more harrowing as like a storytelling device, just this, yeah. Um, and it fits into some kind of like pre established biases which are already dripping in both the way Tucker and his dad talk about the flight crew. Um, but uh, again, I'm not ready to call Tucker a liar, it's just interesting that. So far, he's the only source of that that I can find. But then that was, you know, 20 years ago. And we're talking about Tucker Carlson, the man today. So in that same Greta talk interview, he tells Greta exactly how this event changed him. But it totally changed my life.
4: I mean, I, I, I thought I was going to die. Obviously, we were in the air for quite a while, knowing we were going to crash. And within a few months of coming back, um, we decided to have another child. I quit a fourth child. I quit drinking. Um, A few other things happened, but basically... Well, oh, they
5: weren't even serving alcohol on the flight, though. They, they, they weren't. Don't, they don't serve alcohol on those flights. Well, I actually
4: had alcohol in my bag, okay. I'll be totally honest. But anyway, the point is, it totally changed my life, and I've never been afraid to fly since. Because dying in a plane crash is actually not the worst way to go, as compared to pick a disease. A plane crash, you've got time to say your prayers, it's time to say goodbye, and then it's over. And it's kind of an interesting way to go. So I've never been afraid to fly since
2: dying in a plane crash is better because you have more time to pray than if you get sick
1: (laughs) yeah i like it's it's one of those it's one of those situations where i think i agree with the point he made but the logic he used to get there is alien to me (laughs) yeah very strange so I just thought it was interesting because there in 2014, we get, he was, at, he describes it was after this event that he start that he decided to quit drinking and he had smuggled alcohol onto the plane in his bag, apparently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it, it, it the, as, as a chronicler of Tucker Carlson, I, I found this a really interesting little, uh, little time capsule, to, something that had previously been kind of a black box, actually, um, for me, it was this, this plane crash situation um, Because it, it to, to hear Tucker tell it, at least, it does seem to have had a pretty big effect. Uh, at the very least, he's not afraid, afraid to fly anymore. But now we're going to move on from that for the duration of this interview. Because he's going to talk some more about getting fired.
3: I don't remember. The, I know why people don't like you now, but the lovers outweigh the haters. But when, when did people loathe you before? When they're at the CNN crossfire thing?
4: No, I... I left CNN because I I was really frustrated with working at CNN for eight years. I was there a long time. And then I went to MSNBC and I got the main show there. I was the primetime anchor, like anchoring the lineup next to Mm -hmm. Keith Oberman. And I failed and I failed. You know, I just failed in the most basic way. I got bad ratings. You know, so it's kind of hard to evade responsibility for that. I mean, you can sort of blame other people. But in the end, if you've got a TV show and your job is to, you know, get into as many living rooms as you can and you fail, it's, it's kind of your fault. And it very much was my fault. And I got fired for it. And um, that was one of those moments where I was like, well, I'm sure they, you know, they screwed me over or whatever. But the truth is, I was lazy and entitled. And it set off this chain reaction financially because I've never been good at money. Where I like looked around and I was like, oh, wow, I'm living this totally unsustainable life and I don't, I'm not making any money. So I had to, I had to sell the house that, you know, and I had a young family. I had four children and a wife. And I, it was, you know, it was pretty low grade disaster. I mean, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, lose a limb in war, or, you know, get paralyzed in a car accident. But for me, who'd grown up in a pretty privileged world, I mean, it was distressing.
1: Yeah. So that was kind of more, um, I, I blew my load on the on the uh, closing libertarian thread early, but <laughs> so then uh, th- they talk a little bit more about Chris Cuomo. Tucker talks about how um, you know he hopes that getting fired is good for him and he comes out of it a better person. And Megyn Kelly is like, "Well, I don't really want to see him step back into prominence if he's going to keep lying all the time." Uh, and that gets Tucker off on a on a on a pretty philosophical tangent about falseness.
4: I couldn't agree more. And the thread that ties together all of this behavior is falseness. And you can tell, I mean, I I know this from having three daughters who I listen to carefully. And one of the things I notice about their assessments of people is that they're almost all olfactory. Like my girls almost never make an argument on behalf of their position about a person. They're like, that person's false or that's a good person. Like they can feel it. They trust their instincts. And and I try to emulate that because I think it really is the most effective way to assess people. And I look at Cuomo. I look at a bunch of people on the air, just in general, in cable news, on all the channels, actually. And what I see is people hiding who they really are, being false. Mm-hmm. And once you start pretending to be someone you're not, there's no end to the lies. And it just compounds and distorts you increasingly over time. And so what I guess what I'm saying is I'm not hoping that Chris Cuomo gets another primetime show. Of course not. I'm hoping that Chris Cuomo drops the pretense and presents to the world who he really is, Mm -hmm. because that is liberation. I mean, really, you want to be free? Freedom is being who you really are in public, being unashamed of it, being willing to explain it, being open. And you can just feel it. You can feel people's spirits, the people who are hiding some secret that they're desperate you not know about. And the people who are just totally transparent. And as I age, I cannot stand to be around the former category. It makes me too nervous. Like, I know you're hiding something really heavy. I don't know what it is, but I can feel it. And across cable news, like, everybody is doing that. It's bad.
2: Okay. A couple of things there. Um, What an excellent way to not have to give a reason for disliking a person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. i just had an intuition that they're a bad person so obviously they are and they're lying if they if they say anything that goes against what i think about them
1: <laughs> yeah i think i think it was in tragedy the bow tie part two where he, we had a couple of clips of him talking about how like he tries to judge people the way dogs do and he thinks that you can smell when people are lying like it it's that's a pattern to believe at this point. He really thinks that he has the ability to smell lies. He needs to
2: get his nose checked then. Um,
1: <laughs> and then I don't,
2: he's, I think he is holding Chris Cuomo and public figures to an impossible standard. Cause okay. He, he's not saying this. So if, if you're not hearing it the same way I am like, and I'm being crazy, let me know, but it, they're talking about this in the context of like Chris Cuomo um, being in trouble for um, a sexual harassment allegation. So it kind of sounds to me like they're saying, how come they don't just come out and say, uh, I like harassing women so that we know who they really are. Like no person would do that. No person identifies that way. you you know like yeah um so and like he talks about like keeping secrets you want to talk about your vaccination status tucker (laughs) because you act real weird every time
1: people ask you about it like really weird really weird yeah uh in case anybody missed it um his notorious uh answer to that question have you been vaccinated is when did you last have sex with your wife and in what position? Yeah. Which, not an equivalent question, actually. No, it's not. However you choose to fuck your wife has no effect on whether or not you're a danger to me. Yes. And while I'm in favor of a more sex-positive world, uh,
2: this is not a good argument in favor of that. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the problem, Tyler, is that this type of lying, it really damages America.
4: The downside is it really has a corrosive effect on the society. Imagine if you were black or, or more specifically, if you were a Haitian immigrant and there are a lot of cool, successful Haitian immigrants in this country, particularly in South Florida. And you're just like a normal person. You're watching CNN and you see the president of the United States or Chris Cuomo telling you that Haitians coming here are beaten with whips because they're Haitian. Mm-hmm. Like, How does that make you feel about the United States? Does it make you more secure? Does it make you love the country more? Does it make you paranoid? Does it make you feel persecuted? Like, this stuff actually hurts people, because it's untrue. But it adds to the perception that this is a racist country whose ideals are not worth defending. Like, Chris Cuomo, I mean it. I don't think it's an overstatement to say this kind of lying really corrodes what holds us together as a country.
2: Oh, at least he was very careful to say this kind of lying so so that I can't... So that I can't say that lying on a big platform in general is is a bad thing, Tucker Carlson.
1: The type of lying I do, that's good lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, this gets us into the territory where we, we did play two clips from this interview before where they were talking about The Great Replacement. And, and goddammit, it was my birthday. I don't want to talk about The Fucking Great Replacement. So... <laughs> We're gonna, we're gonna gloss over most of that portion of the interview because normally we don't have the liberty of doing that <laughs> short version great replacement
2: very racist and very conspiracy theory that is not true um and tucker likes to talk about it on his very very large cable news show
1: but we can deal just a little bit with this idea that so before this they were talking about how um chris cuomo he knew that this story was going to come out so he's been trying to put as many chips in the woke bank as possible to like build up goodwill with the wokes and they talked about how harvey weinstein did the same thing when he was accused he donated a bunch of money to now and so they're essentially making a virtue signaling signaling accusation here that well with a, a bit deeper than that though they're saying that these people They don't really buy into all the woke stuff, but it's like the dominant cultural force. And so then they try to piggyback on it and put chips in the woke bank to protect themselves from criticism. Um, Tucker takes the argument a step further then and says that that type of lying hurts the country because, say you're a Haitian immigrant and you see Haitian immigrants being mistreated in the news. And you think that America is a bad country. And so that erodes our social fabric. Um, now, Tucker Carlson would never. Uh,
2: belittle immigrants on his show.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tucker Carlson would never. Sow the seeds of division. And er- erode things that bind us together. No. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was worth charting that argument. Because I. Like one. There are a lot of steps on that slippery slope, but um, what he's essentially saying, unless you believe that injustice just doesn't exist, then what he's saying has to be that it's better off when there is a general consensus in the media to not emphasize the injustices committed by America because it's dangerous if people don't think highly of America. And I do not think that that's a good way to approach a job where ostensibly your role is to inform people. Um, because on a purely informational basis, America does a lot of fucked up shit that it would be good for people to be aware of. True.
2: True. Um, also, it's interesting that in this context, now he suddenly is not in favor of defining yourself by
1: the worst thing about you. <laughs> <laughs> For real. So they get here into how the, how the Gert replacement theory doesn't have anything to do with the race, man. Um, and then Tucker, which we've heard him argue a hundred times. And then he takes this a step further and says, no. The people calling me a racist, they're the racist ones.
3: And your point about that soundbite is why
1: if you reverse the races, if you say. Uh, The the soundbite they're talking about is that clip of Joe Biden saying that in a few years, um, non-white people would be a majority in the United States. Okay.
3: And your point about that soundbite is why if you reverse the races, if you say like the whites are going to come into the majority and that's not a bad thing, you you, you would sort of understand the racism inherent in that statement.
4: Well, it's disqualifying. No one who talks like that should ever be president. It's eugenicist. I mean, the source of our strength is non-white DNA. I mean, what? Uh, How could you say something like that? Really? So people's value to the country is determined by their genes and their skin color? That's like Nazi stuff. What? That's not, you know, I'm 52. I grew up in a country that tried really, really hard, didn't always succeed, but certainly tried as a matter of official policy to be colorblind and to judge people not on their appearances, but on what they do, on the choices that they make, on their character, on their inherent moral value. So,
2: um, I don't remember that Joe Biden clip perfectly, but it wasn't like, oh, thank God where the, um, white people are losing their, their population share. It was, this is a
1: fact. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We, it it was, we, we played, uh, we, we played an extensive Joe Biden clip last time we talked about this. I I won't replay it again here, but the point he was making was, um, it's a source of America's strength that we've always been able to assimilate immigrants, which really is the opposite of what Tucker is trying to claim. He said, um, but then th- this gets some more broadly into how open borders just doesn't make sense as a policy, man. So and then, then as a
4: practical matter, it you know, there are all kinds of other problems with mass immigration. The first one is it, it just creates a very volatile society. If the population keeps shaking, look, look. If you had people constantly moving in and out of your own house, and this country is our home, then that would not be a peaceful household. You could choose to adopt children and make them your own, and that's a virtuous thing to do. It's a great thing. But if you had no control over who was living in your house, what would your household look like? How would mm-hmm. your kids Experience their own childhood. I mean, that's a, a hugely disruptive thing to do to right. any.
3: Opposing open borders is not racist. It's there <laughs> are very good reasons to oppose open borders, having nothing to do with the race of the people crossing in. Um, and th- there's no question about that. I, mean, I think. Biden's defenders, the people are saying, look, you know, and I know this because I've been living on the Upper West Side for 17 years. They say, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. And he's talking about from the beginning of this country forward, we've had more and more immigrants. And that's not a bad thing. We're a melting pot. And I get all that. I I mean, I think that is one of the things that makes America great, just sort of the diversity. You know, you, you walk out in New York City, you see every color, you see every nationality, but they're all living in New York and they all love New York. I mean, that is one thing sort of on a more microcosm basis that holds us together. We love our city. At least we did before Mayor de Blasio. And on a larger level, it was always we love our country. We're happy to be here. We realize it's a privilege right. to live in America. That's, right. that's as I understood your comments. That's what you were starting from. You take away that you take away patriotism, all love of, of America. And then what are we left with? People like people come from other countries. Well, what are they? They're told that we're, we're awful. America sucks um, and we become more tribal. And where what do we look like? What do we, how do we relate to one another? What do we stand for at that point, Ten years, five, ten years from now?
2: Holy crap, that was a lot of bullshit all at once. So, um <laughs> opposing open borders isn't racist. Um, You'd have to make a really, really convincing argument to me, Megan, to convince me that people who oppose open borders are not racist. What <laughs> other reason? No one cares about the Canadian border. No one's making an argument about... I don't th- I don't think they would care if we had open borders on the north, but they care deeply about the border to the brown country.
1: It, Tucker has talked explicitly before. The reason he thinks that to invite immigrants is to invite disorder is because he views um, he, he views nation a lot of na- the, he views most nations in the global south as being disordered and thinks that people are inherently reflective of the environment they live in so they'll necessarily bring disorder here if we allow them across the border like it, just because your racism is more nuanced than the color of skin doesn't mean that's not racist for real um, and then Megan Kill, they're just making shit up like
2: when I go to New York New Yorkers love New York it's like first of all it is a statistical impossibility that like everyone who lives in New York loves it there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and second, like she's implying that that immigrants don't love the places that they live. Do you know how hard it is <laughs> to live in this country if you weren't born here? Chances how could are you get here and not love the and love it. Like <laughs> yeah, chances are they went through some shit to move there. <laughs> like. Which is way harder than being born.
1: (laughs) Jesus. And then here, Tucker makes a a claim that... This took me down a fun little rabbit hole.
4: Why would you ever allow anyone into your country that didn't agree with what your country stands for? It's like, it's totally... So you can have more Amazon employees? Are you joking? Mm. I mean, we haven't even gotten to that, but this is clearly just... I mean, this is being funded by, driven by the biggest conglomerates in the world who want to lower the value of labor, obviously. And if Mm -hmm. the labor union still existed and were anything other than dishonest grifts on behalf of their own leadership, they would say something, as they have in generations past. But you need to bring people in who agree with the Bill of Rights, who love the country. The last thing you want to do is import more Ilhan Omar's. The United States rescued her from a refugee camp in Kenya, and she's been attacking the United States ever since, On racial grounds. What? She's like an arsonist. If we're importing more people like that, it's suicide.
2: I really hate this, like, people who don't love what the country stands for things. that's I think that's going on my list of racist dog whistles.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably overdue, but you're totally right. It belongs there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like
2: interesting how he just says oh they don't believe in what we stand for without saying
1: what we stand for <laughs> and then he would say well i mean it, obvi- sure not all immigrants hate america but we can't know which ones, so it's better not to let any of them in <laughs> yeah because the the default assumption is that it brown people are invaders mm-hmm. and um it, it what he said there about i like that he always has qualifiers like if the labor union still existed they would agree with me if they were anything other than sonic scripts so then boom i don't need to worry about any counter examples yeah um but then he also said that it, it, it's a ploy to get more amazon warehouse workers and that's where it'd be uh, I, I would like to just take a minute to point out that amazon um is a massive resource for ICE and that they pretty much allow ICE to function. I'm going to... Interesting. That's not something I've heard before. (laughs) I'm going to quote a little bit now from an article in Technology Review called Amazon is the Invisible Backbone of ICE's Immigration Crackdown. This is from 2018. At the center of the criticism was the data mining company Palantir, which designed the investigative case management system. The ICM is a critical component of ICE's deportation operations. It integrates a vast ecosystem of public and private data to track on immigrants and, in many cases, deport them. Uh, little is known about how the software actually works or how extensively ICE uses it, but within the first nine months of the Trump administration, ICE arrests increased 42% compared with the same period in the previous year. According to civil rights and immigration activists, ICM is fueling the mass surveillance and targeting of immigrants at an unprecedented scale. Now, the reasons this is relevant to Amazon. Uh, ICM pulled together data from an array of federal and private law enforcement entities to create detailed profiles that were then used to track immigrants. The data could include a person's immigration history, family relationships, personal connections, addresses, phone records, biometric rates, and other information. All of that data and the algorithms powering ICM are now being migrated to Amazon Web Services in their entirety. Palantir pays Amazon approximately $600,000 a month for the use of its servers, according to the report's authors. Though the money doesn't flow directly from ICE to Amazon, the tech giant has the right incentives for Palantir to choose Amazon Web Services. In order for Palantir to to secure its contract with the government, ISCM had to be hosted on a federally authorized cloud service. An online government database shows that Amazon holds the largest share. 22% of federal authorizations under the FedRAMP program, which verifies that cloud providers have the necessary security requirements to process, store, and transmit government data. More important, Amazon holds 62% of the highest level level authorizations, usually needed to handle data for law enforcement systems. So the, the point here is that the the services that ICE uses to track surveil and deport immigrants um function because of Amazon Web Services. Interesting. And then uh it th- there there was some pressure from activists on Amazon to um to cancel these contracts, which they flatly refused. Another quote from that article. Um Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, at least, has so far been unmoved by appeals for his company to drop its Department of Defense bid. Quote, we are going to support the DoD, and I think we should. Uh, He said last week on stage at the Wired 25 conference, one of the jobs of senior leadership is to make the right decisions, even when it's unpopular. Bezos also remarked that that society's immune response would kick in to prevent Amazon technology from being used in harmful ways. The statement received heavy criticism from civil rights activists and Amazon employees alike. Quote, our concern isn't about some future harm, the anonymous Amazon employee wrote in an open letter. Amazon is designing marketing and selling a system for dangerous mass surveillance right now. For a moment, there's no sign of that changing.
2: I don't know why they thought appealing appealing to civil rights would work on... Bad human costume, Jeff Bezos, but um, <laughs> um but yeah, I, I kind of think they're attacking this from the wrong angle. Like, I think we should abolish ICE, and then they wouldn't have a need for. Yeah, yeah, I could get behind that Amazon services, <laughs> um, instead of like asking a company. Under capitalism, to stop doing something that is profitable for it, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like they knew it wouldn't work. Okay, now yeah, that's I'm an interesting point, and
1: <laughs> and it, that that's an interesting point. And if anyone is a lizard person, Jeff Bezos is a lizard person. Um, what, have you seen a picture of him? He's <laughs> not a he's not a human. I w- I went to space and I experienced that thing I said I was going to experience. <sighs> god i hated that <laughs> so much um but yeah I, I thought it was interesting though that tucker has talked about open borders as like an amazon policy um when in effect amazon has been pretty detrimental to immigrant rights in this country um in so more that, ways than i realized yeah and then uh so this clip was a weird experience for me Tyler because they're pretty much done talking about politics now and the rest of this interview is um, is about Tucker wearing his heart on his sleeve and this clip um, came at a time in my life where I was vulnerable and it made me wish that Tucker Carlson was my dad <laughs> <laughs> It must be pretty good. All right. (laughs) So uh, I might take my headphones off for this one. But Here we go.
4: (laughs) I just said to one of my kids who I was trying to convince one of my, one of my favorites uh, and was thinking, and you know, all my kids went to a pretty good high school. So I felt like they're well-educated enough. And I've tried to convince all four not to go to college just because I think it's totally counterproductive and stupid and probably pretty bad for you. So I've said to all four and the last one, I was intent on this child not going to college. I really was my mission to convince her not to go. And I said, you know, I'll pay you the tuition. You'll have some cushion. Well, what would I do? I said, you need to move to Alpine, Switzerland and write novels, you know, and have a bunch of kids and ski every day. And then Aww. this child's smart and write novels. And she goes, oh, I want to do that. And I said, well, you should do it. And I'll do whatever I can to help you. And she's like, oh, but. I'd be the only person who's doing that. And I it's too weird. And ah, it just broke my heart.
3: No, so. she's right. At this age, she's gotta go out. Yeah. Plus, you know, she's gotta do some stuff, right? I think you you probably a better write her. Especially no, like I know. When, yeah, if you go out and you know, you do stupid stuff. You gotta get fired a few times, you gotta do make oh, stupid <laughs> mistakes, have <laughs> your heart All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to twist this into a
2: positive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try to twist this from rich guy really, really, really doesn't want his kids to learn about the world. <laughs> um, to um Tucker is secretly advocating that um, people should have the right to travel the world and enjoy their life instead of be tied to a job forever. In a geographic
1: location defined by borders.
2: <laughs> yeah wouldn't it be nice if, if we weren't forced to work um, in order to not starve to death? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah.
1: Yeah, His, his, his ideas about college are, are dumb. I mean, not that, not that everybody should go to college. It's a giant pit of money and uh, oftentimes pointless.
2: Um, It should be free. First of all. Um, (laughs) And then you should go if you
1: want, (laughs) but it, again this is where tucker um his means of getting there are inverted from from like what we like how we get there because what he's not concerned about money he thinks that his kids shouldn't go to college because they're already well educated enough and college is probably bad for you what he means is that he thinks college is going to turn them into a liberal and he and he yes. thinks that because college is a good place where you're exposed to people who aren't like you, and your biases <laughs> are worn away by experience, and you open up to the world that you've previously been closed off from. Yeah, interesting <laughs> how that works. And and that that's what Tucker is casting as a bad thing. <laughs> and um, yeah, he uh, but it, it, as stupid as that is, I can't be mad at him. I'm just. I would give I would give anything for a dad who was going to support me moving to the Swiss Alps and writing novels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like
2: I I don't know, I I'm, I'm 100% serious. I I think we should have a world where you can do that if you want. <laughs> um I feel I don't know. I I feel like that's something that people wouldn't take seriously, but maybe in our audience they
1: would. <laughs> like money is fake and organizing a society around the desperate pursuit of a fake thing is inherently unfulfilling. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Crazy how that works.
3: (laughs) On the subject of um, books, uh, Simon and Schuster, uh, they, they published your book, the long slide, 30 years in American journalism. And (laughs) you, you did not spare, anything for them. You're not happy with the president. You called him a cartoonish corporate censor uh, and use the introduction of your book to attack the company for canceling Senator Josh Hawley's book deal. You called Simon and Schuster a disgusting company run by disgusting people. And it reminded me of a quote that I I read of you. I think you were talking to uh, Alex Marlowe of Breitbart where you said, I'm in this hyper privileged position where I can say whatever the hell I want. And my view is I'm just going to. And so I freaking love that. And, and you live that. I mean, anybody who watches your show know that knows that's true of you. Um, How has that like, how did that happen that they publish your book? And then, you you know, you got into this sort of war with them.
4: Well, let me say, I hope, and I do talk to my wife about this a lot that the, I do feel like I have the freedom to tell the truth, which is a really rare position to be in.
3: It is in
4: this country. You're in that position too. And I think it's a great place to be, but it's also, you don't want to use that freedom just to attack people. I mean, I I don't want to be the person just like running around machine gunning everybody because that's. Uh, you know, that's bad. But um, in this specific case, I was under contract to write two books for Simon Schuster. I, I wrote the first one. It was successful. The second one um, came along and they canceled Josh Hawley's book contract because they came under pressure from the Democratic Party to do that. And my longstanding view has been that American publishers exist to facilitate the intellectual debate that's necessary to have a thriving democracy. It's It's not a small thing. You can't cancel people at the behest of a political party. And that's exactly what they did. So I called up the president and I said, I think what she did is immoral. I think you're a pig. And I I want out of this book contract. And they said, because I don't want to participate in this. I don't want to take money from a company that does this. And their view was write the book or we'll sue you. Okay, then I said, well, if you're going to make me write the book, I'm going to tell the truth about how I feel about you, because I'm not going to be implicated in this. I don't want to be part of it you know, I'm taking this dough from a company that crushes people because Nancy Pelosi tells them to? Like, no way. So I write this, and then they have to decide whether to publish it or not, and I think they feared the blowback from canceling a book about how they cancel books Mm -hmm. would be worse than, you know, the effect of publishing it, because they knew that no one was going to write about it. I mean, I have no allies in the rest of the media, so... Um, it's basically not been written about at all, which is, I mean, I don't care, uh, either way, but I they were probably pretty smart to publish it, but I just felt like I should be honest about it. And so I went and talked to Jonathan Karp, who runs Simon and Schuster and his deputy, who's really out of it and has literally no experience in book publishing whatsoever, like literally none. And I asked them, why did you do this? And one of the things that I learned in talking to them in great detail, uh, is that they're dumb. And that oh, was boy. like a total shock to me. Yeah, they're not that <laughs> smart. I mean, I'm not dumb or anything, but these are people who can't kind of explain their own actions in a logical way that can't have a linear conversation. They're just not very smart. And yet they're in this position of enormous influence in American society. And it makes you wonder, it's just, I mean, Chris Cuomo went to Yale. Like what?
3: I know. So right. it makes you realize that- And literally the, thinks that the First Amendment bans, quote, hate speech. What a exactly. dumbass. Oh, what a
4: dumbass. Thank you for saying that. Exactly. So it it's just another reminder that our system is not meritocratic. It's set up in a way that elevates some of the worst people in this huge country to the positions of the most authority. It's really bad. I mean, our system is not working. The merit badges that people collect along the way
1: mm.
4: are not relevant to leadership. So anyway, it was dispiriting.
1: I what did you take from that? The
2: The two big things were, um, he's pretending that publishers exist to facilitate political debate and not sell books that people want to buy. Um, and then the other thing I, um, the other thing that stuck out to me was our system is not meritocratic. Like everyone knows that, (laughs) (laughs) Don't they like? Don't people know that the system is not meritocratic? Yeah, like like just... everybody,
1: everyone who knows, the fifties ended. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, like I, I do I I hear. I think it's like a conservative thing. They they pretend that we live in a meritocracy to justify like people who are already popular being popular because like if they like it, so they they pretend that we live in a meritocracy. It's like well. We live in a meritocracy, so um, this person that that you don't like is actually fine because he's because he's already successful. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I I I remember um when I followed uh, some conservative YouTubers, they would um make that argument a lot and it's and now that i'm older it's like we don't live in a meritocracy you have to pretend that we live in a meritocracy in order to sound reasonable <laughs> like we live in like an attention economy it has no like the merit of your work like whether you're honest or not has nothing to do with how successful you are <laughs> it's yeah all to as, do with as i've inside the are. man
1: speaking um, in the club yep. but yeah, yeah whole other thing and then in inherent in tucker saying this is not a meritocracy is the assumption that it should be which i actually think is worth challenging and it, it, it depends what you're talking about but like I, I think that even the the people of the least ability should have access to a good life um yeah but the, that's a whole different conversation anyway <laughs> um the his, his feud there with um simon and schuster he was talking about so his, his most recent book the long slide 30 years in american journalism was published by simon and schuster and um the the introduction or the foreword details like it, with a great granularity um a conversation he had on a zoom call with the these two uh executives at Sh- simon and schuster where he was trying to get them to explain why they canceled the publication of Josh Hawley's book. Um, And this was after Josh Hawley tried to sedition um, or did sedition. I don't know where the definition draws. Um, I I, I think he sedited. (laughs) (laughs) Sedited. Okay. (laughs) um, I I was going to play a clip from the audiobook where there was like detailing this conversation but i'm certain that that's illegal <laughs> <laughs> the uh the, the gist of it is that they kept saying that um they made the decision that Josh Hawley's book would draw scorn from the public and so they made the decision not to publish it um which Tucker takes as them bowing to pressure from the democratic party and it, it, it's it's a big, circular, meandering, meaningless conversation. Um, but in it, Tucker also tries, tries to get him to explain, or at, at least draws comparisons to the cancellation of Milo Yiannopoulos' book. Um, and Milo Yiannopoulos, for anyone who doesn't know, is a goddamn monster. True. Uh tucker's main defense of him in in the book seems to be that hey he's funny and what's interesting to me is that for all tucker's talk that this should be a meritocracy he's really upset that a company would dare not publish the the thoughts of like a powerful conservative white guy like he's he's furious that they bowed this political pressure and didn't cancel Josh Hawley's book when he by buy it like a merit, a meritocratic capitalist worldview. If they don't want to be associated with Josh Hawley's, um, you know, brand, then the company actually has no obligation to publish that book. Or if they don't want to be associated with the neo-Nazi molestation apologist, fuck, they have ever read not to publish my book and tucker's default seems to be that these men have a right to a platform damn it and it doesn't matter the merit or it doesn't matter what they've done so he's making the inverse of the argument he thinks he's making and i find it fascinating
2: yeah um not to not to backtrack too much but um that whole that whole tirade I, i feel like i have a better answer to your question um, my impression of that thing that he said is, oh my God, he's so fucking whiny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he's a fucking whiner. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't think I have the clip, but later on he talks about how the, the one thing he hates more than anything is complaining, and he doesn't tolerate complaining. You complain for a living, motherfucker. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe he said that. <laughs> But here here's where the conversation actually gets a little Freudian, because Megan Kelly wants to ask Tucker about his mom.
3: So let me ask you, because I know you don't talk about this a lot, but I just I do want to follow up on your mom taking off because um, I looked it up just to see um, armchair psychiatry. Uh, When a child is, quote, abandoned by his or her mother, it can lead to doubts about you being lovable. Difficulty trusting people, and in most kids, it will leave it'll leave the child to blame himself uh, because they're so little. I mean, six is little. Did yeah. any of that happen to you? How do you think it affected you? I,
1: I realize I should provide some necessary context for anyone who doesn't know, um including when, me. <laughs> Tucker Carlson's biological mom abandoned him and his brother when he was six. She like ditched the family and moved to Paris. So. Uh, for, for for a couple of years, Tucker and his mother were raised by a single father. Um, before their dad remarried to the uh, the Swanson Chicken Fortune Lady. Um, but here Megan is like, so I read up on some psychological things that happen to kids whose moms abandon them when they're six. Did any of that <laughs> happen to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
2: and I and I don't. I don't want anyone to have any extra reason to call us monsters. So uh, it sucks uh, that Tucker's mom left. I don't.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... absolutely. Like that, that's a shitty thing to happen to any kid. And like, yeah. uh, of, of course that's traumatic. And if anything, I think maybe Megan Kelly's questioning here is a little bit insensitive. Yeah. Um. But here's how Tucker handles that.
4: Well, I'm sure it did. I mean, I, you know, I had periods in my younger life when I, you know, partied too much, you know, for real. Um, not, you know, like not just have like too many beers at a party, but like actually party too much, you know, again, for real. Mm-hmm. So um, I look back on that and I think, you know, I learned some stuff from those experiences, but I also wonder like, why did I behave that way? Uh, but I decided, you know, with that. I never talk about this because I never want to see him whining. And again, I interpret my childhood as a really positive thing. Um, But, you know, our mom was not a fan of us and was pretty direct about it. And, you know, that's obviously hurts when you're little, but then I realized you can't control it. You know, you just can't control it. And your mother doesn't Mm -hmm. like you. Okay. Boo hoo. You know, it sounds really terrible, but it's not sort of up to me how she feels. And so I think, in later life, the lesson that I internalized from that was you, you really can't control how other people feel. And so you have to, you just kind of have to be happy with who you are. And really, I think, I mean, I got married at 22 and had four kids. Mm-hmm. So looking back, like you, it's hard to understand yourself except through your behavior. I think mm-hmm. yeah. that that's, you know, what you're really like, that that's how it manifests itself. And I just had this drive to have a really close, normal, happy family dinner together, No one's doing anything weird. Do you you know what I mean? Also, I grew up in Southern California at a time when people were doing really weird stuff. Like for real, even by modern standards, people were doing really weird stuff, you know, really weird, you know, really weird. So (laughs) and at the time I knew that. Like when I was little in Laurel Canyon in L.A., I was like, this is weird. I mean, the Eagles live next door to us. It was like, you know, it was just a wild time in the country. <laughs> and so I didn't want that. I wanted a totally happy family where everyone's close and everyone's named after someone else. And like everyone gets together all the time. And 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 I've had that. And I, it's the greatest thing in my life. And I'm, I really do not take that for granted. And the second well, thing is criticism from people I, who hate me doesn't really mean anything to me, I think. It really doesn't. I care what the people I love think. I care deeply. If my wife is upset with me, I, I you know, I can't even function because I care so much about what she thinks. And my children, same thing. My close friends, I have a bunch of lifelong friends. The people I work with, I feel that way about them too. But like some random, you know, the ADL doesn't like me or something, mm-hmm. the partisan who runs it. Like, I don't care. Why would I care? I'm not giving those people emotional control over me. I've been through that. I lived through that as a child. Yeah. I'm not doing I, that again.
2: It kind of feels like Megyn Kelly is trying to set Tucker up for a I'm stronger now thing, which is a thing that every interviewer does when they're interviewing someone who's gone through a hardship. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I think that's that's exactly what she did. But then, then he has to make it weird. The example he chooses that the anti-defamation league doesn't like him. And saying that that doesn't bother him because of because his mom left is like really fucked up to me
1: i don't is that yeah i I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're totally right like it's actually not the same thing if the anti defamation league doesn't like you, then it is if your mom doesn't like you like those mean different things
2: those mean very, very different <laughs> things, yes. <laughs> Yeah it's so weird like no no regular person can use that example you know yeah. it's so it's so obvious how pow- how rich and powerful Tucker Carlson is that the first example he thinks of like oh who doesn't like me oh yeah that <laughs> organization that <laughs> Cares about human civil rights and whatnot. They don't like me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we don't know. We don't know how it went down in that house. Maybe his mom was grabbing little six-year-old Tucker by the shoulders, like "You're too hard on the Jews." <laughs> 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 I believe I sprung an anti-Semite from my loins. <laughs> I. Like I, I don't I don't wanna like try to psychologize baby Tucker too much, but I, I think there might be something to the fact that like his mom was an artist and she moved to she moved to France when she left and she was like I guess like an artistic person and, and she A didn't like him and B left. Um and he kind of maybe associates that with like this this like super weird culture around him in California in the 70s. Um or the 80s that seems like the kind of thing that makes you a deeply rooted conservative is like oh all this weird stuff that's antithetical to the to my patriarchal white family and is like artsy and different also hates me and abandoned me so fuck what they think
2: yeah interesting um i didn't know as i didn't know his mom was artsy but yeah that seems that seems like a valid line of <laughs>
1: analysis there um yeah. He, they, they talk a little bit more about this and he, he's going to talk about her death here. And this, I don't know, this, this was made me really sad. But
3: to no. your point, if your mom and doesn't fact, like I you. I never
4: talked to her again. And when she died a few years ago, I got a call from a relative of mine and she lived in in France and said, uh, you know, your mother's dying. And I, I know, you know, and I, it, the funny thing is God, I've never talked to this, but, uh, you know, for all those years, I mean, I was a fully adult man working at Fox News when this happened. And I had always said to my wife, who I'd known, actually, the funny thing is, today is the 37th anniversary when we started dating. So it's oh been a long gosh. time.
3: Wow. Software um, your high school?
4: Yeah, first day, first day, September 1984. So, but I've always said to her the whole time, I was like, she never met my mother, obviously. And I said, you know, I'm, I feel great about it. I feel totally fine. I'm, I feel very well adjusted, especially when I stopped partying, but I'm kind of worried. I'm going to get a call one day from someone who like, this woman's been found dead and we think that she's your mother or whatever. I don't know anything about her. I don't know where she is. I'm totally cut off. I mean, I, and I, and I said to my wife for years, I would say, I hope it doesn't trigger some like collapse or something, you know, or I go crazy. Mm-hmm. And the day it actually happened, um, I got this call like she's dying and in in this weird little town and set on a farm that she lived on in southwestern France. And and she was basically French at this point. Spent her life there. Uh, you should go visit her. And so I called my brother and he's like, what? No. You know, my son's got a soccer game. And I said, I feel the same way. I don't know this person. And, mm-hmm. and actually, this sounds cold or whatever, but I, I had already kind of made my peace with this over many decades, over 35 years. And I didn't mm-hmm. fall apart. At all. I went out to dinner. I mean, I felt sad for her, I guess. I don't know much about her. She was an artist. She had shows, okay, I guess, and and all that, but she wasn't part of my life. I wasn't part of hers, and I I just... I don't know.
2: Jokes aside, I don't think it's wrong of him to not have a strong emotional connection to someone who left when he was six. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's fine, but... um. I don't know. I, I I do feel like they're framing it as like I'm I'm this strong person who like don't need no mom, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is doing that. Um but then here they segue into his stepmom. And this is fascinating to me because we're gonna hear Tucker talk a bit about how he thinks about his wealth.
3: And I didn't know it's all the years that we worked together. I did not know that in some way you're heir to the Swanson meat fortune. <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> so are you a rich guy? Was she rich? Did that change your life? Did you suddenly go over like, holy shit, we're rich now. We, we have Swanson I, I chicken. Mean, it's funny.
4: I've I've heard people. I mean, I never comment on anything like this ever. I mean, ever. <laughs> I never have one time. Um, and I won't now except to say that uh, I've never gotten a dime. And I mean that. Uh, well, that's not true. It, it had nothing to do with my, um, my stepmom, but, uh, I did, the one thing I did get was a cabin in Maine that we went to our entire lives.
3: That's good. Uh,
4: and I did get that, but you know, it cost $50,000. So it wasn't, oh. <laughs> <it's been laughs> a, long. but no, but but it's a lame kind of <laughs> rich Tucker. <laughs> it's, it's always been that place. You know, anyone who has a family summer house knows, it's like, you know, the generations go to when everyone meets there and all the cousins and all this stuff. It's not, I don't live in a big house. I don't have a big house. My biggest house is 1800 square feet. So I don't like big houses. I never have.
3: As, as evidenced by the room that you are sitting in.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I like, (laughs) I mean, my favorite place in the world is an off-grid cabin, off-grid cabin that it's a, I use for, for fishing. It's on a stream in Maine and we have no electricity or running water. I spend, I spend a lot of time there. I stay there, but, um, no, I never got any money. Not, I mean, no money, um, ever. And that's why when, but you know, which is fine. I mean, most people don't, okay. um, what I did get was a childhood, um, you know, a very a privileged childhood in the sense that I went to expensive schools from, you know, from kindergarten through college. And I grew up in a world of rich people and I grew up in La Jolla and Georgetown. So, you know, I'm hardly the son of a mill worker. You know, I did mm-hmm. get that. I mean, I got full immersion in a very specific.
3: Well, but how did you stay so connected to the people? Because even with the background that you acknowledge has had a lot of advantages, if, if not rich, just rubbing elbows with people of privilege and so on, because you never I you, you to me are more working class than a lot of people who really are from the working class, you know, and you just never seem to have lost that connection. So how did you get it in the first place? and not be corrupted by the elite media circles and so on.
4: Well, I mean, I don't, you know, I never pretend to be, I mean, I'm, I I think one of the reasons people are so in Washington where I spent most of my life are so offended by me personally is that I am absolutely from the world I'm describing. So I know it very, very, I know it intimately. It's my world. Mm -hmm. So I know how mediocre they are. I know what the scam is and I'm not afraid to say so. So they're very offended by the fact I would do that, but you know, screw them. Uh, so I, I would so say true. a couple things. One, my father is an aggressive
1: egalitarian. He just really believed that everyone. So before we go any further, because uh, he he trails off an anecdote about his dad here. Um, but I, I think that was an interesting progression of thought there. Like, I never got a dime. Well, I did get a fifty thousand dollar cabin. But other than that, I went to really
2: expensive school. (laughs)
1: Yeah, other than that, I never got a dime. But I did have a have an enormously privileged upbringing. (laughs) Um, like he he, he's being coy about how he would define how he would define inheriting wealth, because like just being in that environment, going to those schools, and everything is itself a form of generational wealth. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um I was actually going to bring up I I kind of had my ideas about this challenged recently. I was arguing with a friend about um like rich people um and Elon Musk came up and um my friend who I was arguing with was like Elon Musk denies that his parents owned an emerald mine. It's like, okay. Um his parent his dad definitely Partially um, was partial owner of an emerald mine. (laughs) Um, And then he was like, well, what about this? And I guess Elon Musk claims that he arrived in Canada from South Africa with $25 in his pocket and hasn't received money from his family outside from that. So I think I get fixated on, oh, rich people have all this money. It's not just the money. It's like the social infrastructure it's like it's like tucker said it's the expensive schools if you can put on a resume that you went to such and such a school that gives you a huge advantage over anyone else applying for a advanced position you know so it's not just that you have all this cash in your pocket it's you are of a completely different class i could probably never go
1: to whatever high school (laughs) tucker went to you know right it, not like nitpick his wealth. I just think it's interesting the way that he he processes that there's like, e- even in talking about it to Megan Kelly, there are like three stages of rationalization here. Let's yeah, Let's finish up hearing about how his dad was an aggressive egalitarian.
4: That everyone is born with equal moral value. Not everyone is equally capable. That's for certain. But everyone, you know, that those kind of hierarchies of, oh, I'm not going to talk to the housekeeper or whatever. That's like, that's fake. So t- people with a true aristocratic temperament invite the housekeeper to dinner because why wouldn't you? You know, mm-hmm. she's a person, you like her, she works for you. Like, don't see the world. I mean, only fake new money posers do the whole thing. Like, oh, well, you know, I'm the help. I hate mm-hmm. that shit. It's fake. It's so true. Um, and the other thing that I had going for me was we spent, you know, months a year really six six months a year at this point in, a, you know, one of the poorest zip codes in America and, and and my whole life. So I've gone to the same town my whole life. I know everybody. I don't feel like I'm parachuting in as like some random rich guy. You know, I've come here when I was you know seven years old and made no money. I was here when I got fired. I've been here the whole time. So mm. I've really been immersed in a A very different world for a good chunk of the year my entire life there are no summer people where we live none just us and so i just i don't know i've really been affected i've really been affected by that and the last thing i'll say is i believe in skills i've always thought this i think it's super important for people particularly men i'll just say it to have some kind of physical skill like what can you do and the thing i noticed living in the world i lived in in washington for so long was that nobody could actually
3: do anything Uh uh-oh Lost Tucker's audio. Stand by. Trying to fix that. Not sure why.
1: Yeah. So Tucker's call drops for a minute there. I don't
2: feel rich. That's your
1: (laughs) Really, Tucker? (laughs) More or less. No
2: No one feels rich. Troy, have you ever been on Twitter and like seen a rich person talk about their expenses? Like, oh, well, after I pay my housekeeper thirty thousand dollars and pay seventy thousand dollars in mortgage a year i have the exact same amount of money left over in my bank account as someone who makes 30k a year have you have you seen those yeah they don't
1: feel rich (laughs) it's like one of the oldest pieces of wisdom in the in the entire world is that like greed is all consuming and never satisfied that's not like a a new insight (laughs) but uh no
2: um but it is but it is a product of a of an incentive structure that demands the pursuit of made up money paper
1: <laughs> the way he talks about that was really weird too like someone with a real aristocratic temperament doesn't disparage the housekeeper why why would you they work for you only new money posers do that that was Maybe the richest sentence I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. I am
2: one of the good ones. I don't even hit my housekeeper. Like <laughs>
1: Yeah, that rolled up newspaper is only for homeless people. <laughs> <laughs> I have a real aristocratic temperament.
2: <laughs> yeah, so Tucker's doing a very poor job of pretending that he's not upper class.
1: <laughs> yeah, and t- to to Trace's argument here. The reason that these elites in like Washington hate him is because he's from their world, and he knows that they have no physical skills, and so they're actually like mediocre and unimpressive. And because he talks about that, is the reason that they hate him. If Tucker thinks he's the only one who's ever made the observation that Chuck Schumer isn't the guy you'd call to like fix your sink, <laughs> he's gonna be surprised. And and that's that's even ignoring that he said it's it's mainly important for men to have physical skills. We can just leave that where it is. Yeah, he's done casual sexism a couple of times today. He did it with
2: the with the plane story too. Um, he was like, "Oh, all of the flight attendants were men, of course, so they were useless." Like, <laughs> done it a couple of times
1: today. <laughs> yeah. So then they uh, they get Tucker back on the phone. His audio is a little bit worse from here on out. I think he's, like, actually calling into the show now. But uh, then he he, he continues talking about these, how it's important to have physical skills. And I mostly kept this in because making Kelly makes it weird
3: you sort of asked, you know, you think it's important for men in particular to be able to build things and I have to say, just I'll, just to kick it off, Doug has said this too. One day we were sitting in our apartment in Manhattan. Doug's like, you know, just had a thought, like, if, if the grid went down, like if I had to go hunt and get us food here in New York City, how would I do it? Like, how, how can you get air conditioning into an apartment? Like, how does, how does a man build that? And he's like, I have no idea. I couldn't, like, how do, how do they build that chair? How? And, and he's like, you look at Adam the Super, like, he can do all this stuff. I can't do any of this stuff. And whereupon Adam the super started to look very attractive to me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I can I can't vouch <laughs> oh, for Adam's appearance that's hilarious though. No, I do, I think it's essential. I mean, if you want to and it's not just about masculinity and all that. It's you know, being useful is the point of one of the points of life, I think. And self-sufficiency is far underrated. I mean, it really is. So I like that. I mean, I've hunted and fished my whole life. Um, and I continue to partridge season opens tomorrow actually, and, and i got all four of my spaniels and we were out this morning getting ready for it um, and I fish a ton and uh always have and so that 's you know be, getting out into nature, learning how things work, learning about trees and birds and bear and deer and all that stuff. I just think it 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 meets a very essential need, but I also think doing things with your hands, particularly if you 're trapped in your office, writing TV scripts or reading, you know, into a camera every night as I am, it's so important. I mean, I have a wood shop directly outside my studio. I mean, you walk out my studio and there's a workbench, wow, and a, and a wood shop. So, and, and that's, you know, I've always had that. I've always really, in fact, seconds before I sat down to, to talk to you, um, I fixed a chair. I mean, it's not difficult at all, but it's deeply, and it, trust me, I'm not doing anything Impressive. but I mean, I always try and build a couple pieces of furniture every year just because it makes me feel useful. I tie a ton a million trout flies um and saltwater flies and salmon flies, and I like because I like to fish, but I tie them myself because I find it deeply rewarding. And also my flies are better than most people's. so
2: is this the same wood shop that he released a picture of? And I-, I was, was wondering
1: like, the same thing. <laughs> obviously, never used ever. Yeah, because I don't, I don't know that he's talking about the woodshop in those press photos, but if he is, that wood shop has never been used. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, so he has a wood shop for taking promotional pictures. In another thing, something I've been thinking about um, this week uh, in particular, he he brought it up, so I'm just thinking about it. He talks about how um, self sufficiency is underrated. I, as someone who deeply desires to be self-sufficient and why I'm still in the school, <laughs> um, thinks self-sufficiency is probably way overrated, actually. And things would be better if we had more tight-knit communities and we could like help each other and stuff and not demand that every individual work as much as you need to in our society to like buy a house by yourself
1: (laughs) and all that stuff.
2: I feel like that's bad for society as a whole and bad
1: for people. You see Tyler, the problem with that is that you're a filthy collectivist (laughs) Um, and uh, America was built by rugged individualists and you should go live in North Korea if that's how you feel yeah or or venezuela one of my
2: (laughs) one of them socialist countries (laughs) i've had a a, i don't know i've I've been trying to get better at like noticing my my biases and this is definitely one of them i like i i'm desperately pursuing self-sufficiency and i really wish that i didn't have to because i'm really
1: bad at it (laughs) um I do think that it's worthwhile to have some skills like
0: yeah
1: um, the The longest stretch that my dad was ever sober was when he was into woodworking so it was just something else to do so like I mean it I, I'm not I just want to be clear I'm not like disparaging the idea of being good with being good with your hands and I'm sure Adam the super is really hot um, Megan Kelly should probably fuck him <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, another thing too is um society like life as we know it cannot absolutely cannot be achieved by like a single person knowing how to do everything you know like we can't have we can't have houses without you'd have to be a carpenter and an electrician and a plumber and like I don't know, you'd have to manufacture refrigerators and, uh, and like blacksmith a sink or something. Like, you know, like the reason that life is so good is because we can specialize and be good at one thing and then bring the best
1: of everyone together. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's what's sitting wrong with me about what he's saying is that he's, he's equating reliance on others with weakness and like we're, we we have civilization because of our ability to rely on others who know how to do things we don't know how to do <laughs> and, yeah exactly um, I don't know he just I, I, I don't feel like he is, is respectful of that um, I have seen his trout flies and uh, I don't know a ton <laughs> about fly fishing but I've done it a couple of times they look like pretty good flies Um there's a video of this guy uh accosting tucker while he's fishing at a at a um a river in new york and tucker ends up showing the guy some of his flies because tucker said he likes fly fishing and the guy was like do you have to catch the flies yourself and tucker's like oh no let me show you (laughs) it's like like it's, it's honestly a pretty fun video if you can find it but um Can confirm he knows how to tie a trout fly, I think is the point of the tangent. And uh, he's got a bit more to say. (laughs)
3: Um, i have to say i've anyway, done a lot of fly fishing means. out in montana and there's nothing like it there's there's nothing like it. we'd brought our kids out there we, when we were i was there when my uh, oldest son caught his first fish and uh oh. he was thrilled and i was thrilled we were jumping up and down and i was like it's so exciting isn't it yates and he said yes i said that the amount of excitement you feel is disproportionate to the event and he said not for the fish
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow he's a smart kid i'm impressed I don't believe her.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I couldn't say. And your kid's name is Yates. <laughs> that's an objectively bad choice. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry if your name is Yates, but your parents hate you. Um, Tucker has a kid named Buckley, so like they should both be charged with a crime. For real. There should be some laws about what you can name your child. That's my That's my hot take
1: today. Yeah, like my, my biggest emotional reaction to this is that I I miss when I enjoyed fishing. <laughs> like I, I used to fish a lot. It was like what I did with my grandpa. But then now that I'm older and I care more deeply about like animal rights and things, I just like feel bad for the fish and it feels like a really cruel act to me, which isn't a disparage anybody who enjoys fishing. I just personally don't like it anymore. But, um, it was it was kind of sad for me as my grandpa was was dying last year that a, a lot of these memories that we shared I didn't like enjoy reminiscing anymore because now they're tinged with this like retroactive guilt um, which has nothing to do with Tucker and too much to do with me and I should move on to the next clip because Megan Kelly wants to know how Tucker gets his news if he doesn't own a TV and he doesn't go on social media and he reveals here his main source of news gathering. And he corroborates this in an interview around the same time with Dave Rubin. This is bizarre.
3: But it's All right. True. I mean, so I got it. You got to work with your hands and you got to build up more than your television skills. But I do. I don't understand how Tucker Carlson lives in the middle of nowhere, lives the life of a Luddite and manages to consume news because I you don't have TVs. You don't use the Internet. You don't go on social media. I know you use your phone. You are weird in one respect where you will still call people. I, I love that about you. You'll pick up the phone and call oh, yeah. me I'm like, oh, Tucker talks on the phone still. This is awesome. But how do you. How do you stay abreast of the news without using any of those things?
4: By text message. Um I I I take a sauna every day. It's one of my weird. We're obviously Scandinavian given our name and so we grew up with saunas in the house always and oh. I take a sauna every day. I, I believe in it and um I won't bore you with all my views on it. I I could literally write a book on sauna but I'm not quite... going <laughs> to. Anyway, um but I I take a sauna and then I sit outside my sauna usually in a towel and I make calls and text and then I repeat the process every single day of the year. And I get all my information from people. I have a text um, relationship with probably four or 500 people, but a huge cross section of the country. One of my favorites who I text with this morning was a, a waitress that I had at a restaurant in Big Sur years ago who turned out to be like a complete genius and, and a lot of a lot of people, you know members of congress, but there's some they're sometimes the least interesting because they have such an agenda, but you know there's a lot of people, and I just get a massive um flow of information through that, you know, and every I spend hours at it every day. it's not a small thing for me. I mean it's the main thing um did I hear that
2: right? Did Tucker Carlson just tell me that he gets his news by texting old waitresses? <laughs>
1: He he gets his news through a network of four to five hundred people that he texts every day, and there at least one of them is a waitress he had once who quote turned out to be a total genius.
2: I live in a simulation. There's no other answer. There's no <laughs>
1: like it, <laughs> he tells the story to Dave Rubin too around the same time, and uh, in that interview he talks about that waitress again, and he was like I used one of her lines the other night actually just like did you give her a writing credit motherfucker
2: can that even possibly be true how do you how do you host a new show over like
1: things people just texted you and he he goes on to say that he also has a daily news digest prepared for him by a guy who works on the show named Tom Fox so he also gets that and then I don't know sometimes he hires just like a white supremacist to write for him (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to say, like,
2: I don't know if I don't know anything about Tom Fox, (laughs) but based on what I know of other writers on the show, um, I'm not sure
4: if I (laughs) trust his news diet. So we have an overnight news uh, digest that's prepared by a guy who works for us. You probably know him, Tom Fox, who's just like a complete genius. You know, so I have a lot of sources of news, but one thing I don't do is like hang around on Twitter. Or, yeah. you know, loom around the CNN website or you know, because it that stuff gets in your head. I don't I'm not reading the New York Times or the
1: Washington Post like ever. I mean, why would I do that? I mean, it's garbage. So I, uh, I I I don't engage with any ideologically inconsistent media. That's for sure. <laughs> Everything I intake is going to conform to my biases, baby. Uh, OK. Um, and then I cut this out just because it's gross can't let twitter into your bedroom
4: i mean for in my Mm -hmm. life that's a big that's a big thing like we don't do phones in the bedroom like the bedroom
1: you know is for bedroom
4: (laughs) bedroom Mm -hmm. stuff
0: you know
1: i don't ever want to hear tucker say the bedroom is for bedroom stuff but here we are
2: Yep, this is the life we've consigned ourselves to Troy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh so then let's see creeping up on well, we're we're approaching the home stretch anyway. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're gonna they're gonna lie a bit about one of Tucker's favorite things to lie about, which is that time protesters totally attacked his house and there was totally a pipe bomb. hmm.
3: Well, and and so, you, but anyway, but let me ask you that, because it's one thing you married your high school. Sweet, sweetheart. We talked about Susie a minute ago. Uh, it's one thing to protect yourself. And it's one thing to know that you're being attacked. You know, you've been there. I've been there many times. It's another to is a it's another for the spouse to watch it. And it's another for you to now watch your own spouse be attacked. I thank God I haven't had that yet. But your wife, I mean, your home in which your wife was present was literally stormed by a bunch of losers who didn't like you, who didn't like what you had to say on the news. I mean, how low of a person do you have to be to be driven to go harass a news anchor and his wife at their home where children could be present because you don't like what he says on the news? It's insane. But that's a level of stress that's, I mean, almost unprecedented in our business, Tucker. And you've been right at the center of that.
1: So just to reiterate, um, Tucker's home was not stormed. Uh, some people showed up outside his house, stood there for like I think 15 minutes, and somebody did spray paint an anarchy symbol on his lawn. Uh, that was the extent of the damages.
2: Uh, and to answer Megan's question, I think you have to be pretty dang upset with a person to do that. It might warrant some introspection or something. Well, no, Tyler. Totally. You, you see,
1: his mom didn't like him, so why would he care? <laughs> what <are the> people- <laughs> yeah true <laughs> um th- this leads tucker into a story about his daughter that I, I this this is another fun one
4: you know if you have children are out in the out in the world i mean it's it's tough and i think it's been very tough for them um one of my daughters my kids are actually Hilarious, and uh, all four of them have a, have great senses of humor and have some ironic distance from their own lives. I think, but one of them, who's one of my funniest kids, called me the other day. She's a senior in college, and this girl's really, really funny. And she, but she said to me, she's talking about her friend who is the same last name Carlson. It's not a very unusual last name, I don't think. And said that they were out to dinner, and the girls are younger than my daughter. And said, you know, last year when I got to school. Um, all the teachers were the professors were mean to me. All my professors were mean to me. They were like rude to me. And I didn't know what was going on. And a classmate said, you know, they think you're Tucker Carlson's daughter. <laughs> so my daughter was howling with laughter. She thought it was the funniest thing ever. But then I thought, Wait, you actually are my daughter. What's your life like? But, you know, my kids are, you know, they're wasps. They don't like to complain. They will not complain. So it's hard to know because my wife is very anti complaining and we're from an anti complaining culture so like very anti complaining like it's it's better to die than complain about being no like you're
3: that. truly like so my mom left me when i was six i'm good
4: <laughs> well i don't know you don't get anything out of complaining and and by the way as my father said to me when i was little and it's proven to be true you know
1: almost all unhappiness in the world derives from self pity so just to reiterate again tucker gets paid 10 million dollars a year to complain on tv Yes, he does. But you don't get anything out of complaining. <laughs> so then, uh, Megan Kelly wants to talk about her time at Fox News, and I found her framing here really interesting.
3: I know, well, but it, you, but like, makes... back to the, 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 the sort of the topic, we're... we're we you're in an industry that's like me. I mean, there, the narcissism in cable news, you look around everywhere. I mean, I, I, it's not, it's not a Fox News problem. It's a cable news. It's a news problem. Trust me. I had a much worse time at NBC than I ever did at Fox News, um, in terms of egos and so on. Uh, but I don't know. You tell me because I, I've said the other day that it, there was a point at which I looked around Fox in particular and said, this is under the Ailes era, not presently. I, I felt like I'd been working in a cult. You know, I'd been, I'd been going to a cult every day where like the leader was revered and there was no dissent allowed. And you look around, you realize you've chosen very unhealthy lifestyle, you know, set
4: Well, it's definitely an unhealthy lifestyle and you need to, um, you know, you need to take it very seriously. You need to take your own life very seriously. If you enter into this business and sort of let your life happen to you, you will be destroyed. There's no question about that. And there's Mm -hmm. a long roster of people who are living testament to that because they've been destroyed. I know them all and you you do too. So, but you just have to take active steps. It's just like anything else. You know, you just have to be thoughtful about your life. And if you are, you'll be fine, but you have to be very serious about it. And we're, we're very serious about like the simple steps that we take not to go crazy. And if you do that, you'll be fine. And the number one thing is just remembering in the end,
1: all graves go unvisited.
2: All graves go unvisited. That's isn't kind that the, of
1: isn't that the darkest shit you've ever heard?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I used to like adamantly fight people that graveyards are stupid and a waste of
1: space, but kind of a non-issue in the re- in real life. I actually um, I I, I did a I did a pres- I did a um speech once in college about like more environmentally friendly ways to dispose of the dead and uh so i i knew at one point like how much of the united states land mass is devoted to cemeteries um and it 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 was less than you'd think but also like still a lot of acres i don't know it was some decimal of a percent but uh yeah but like the thing
2: is like we're not low on space in america so like <laughs> yeah
1: yeah like it's it, fine it, 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 it it's it's not like a, a pressing issue though there are some groundwater concerns if, um, I think it would be marginally better for
2: the world if we changed to a different method of grieving.
1: Yeah, like I want to be launched into
2: space. <laughs> Surely that would have no environmental repercussions. No, just a large trebuchet.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, if I could get a Viking funeral or just be fed to sharks, I would be a happy man. Um, Dope hell if i could be killed by a shark i'm extremely pro shark attack um <laughs> but we kill way we more of them than they kill of us um <laughs> cult yeah so making kill is still working at fox news was like working in a cult and that is a uh, fun foreshadowing because i forgot to announce before so fox news turned 25 this month oh. um and uh we're gonna be doing a roger ales episode I'm trying to get it get it wrapped up by the end of this month. That might end up being first part of November. It, we're gonna we're gonna be talking a lot about exactly how Fox News in the Ailes era may have been like a cult. And so I wanted to leave that in there. All right, um, that sounds fun. And then speaking of followers of a cult, uh, she also wants to ask a bit about Lindsey Graham.
3: All right. So let me talk to you a little bit about the competitiveness of of our industry in cable, because one of the things I've noticed on your show is you're you're pissed off at Lindsey Graham and you're mad at Governor Abbott down in Texas. And I know why they won't come on your show. They won't come just answer questions. It's the Fox News Channel. You got the number one show in on cable. Just come on and answer a few questions. Why won't they do it? And how big a problem do you think it is? Right. When you're when you're as unabashed about going after people and expressing your thoughts on the news as you are, sometimes it can be an impediment to getting people who are a little weak in the knees to come talk to you?
4: Well, we can't really have any debates on the show because no one will, will come on. There's been a full boycott from Democrats. Unfortunately, I'm sad about it um, for, I don't know, almost three years now. So we can't have a single Democrat. No Democrat will come on. I have a lot of leftists on who I love and admire. I don't agree with them on everything, but I think they're brave and free-thinking people. I mean, I love Glenn Greenwald Has had him on, Love. last night or you know matt taibbi welcome on my show anytime amazing i have a Same. lot of friends on the on the i hate to use the phrase far left but on the free thinking on the old-fashioned like michael tracy i had him on two nights ago mm, he's great these are all people who are they're leftists
1: okay but and again none of those three are leftists
2: <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say like glenn greenwald is basically a republican like what are you talking about <laughs> You know, the old-fashioned left, the right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Tucker has no idea what a leftist is or pretends not to know what a leftist is so that he can appear balanced or something. Um, But he he talks about, oh, I don't know why Democrats won't come on my show. When (laughs) when anyone who goes on his
1: show gets ripped to shreds by... (laughs) Yeah, that one's a fucking mystery, isn't it? Yeah, by him and his audience both. Isn't it just an unsolvable puzzle why Democrats might not want to come on Tucker's show where he can talk over them for three minutes, call them demented, and imply that they're evil? Can't imagine why someone would not want to go on your show after that.
4: (laughs) But I just want someone who's honest. That's all I care about. As for Lindsey Graham, specifically, Lindsey Graham's a fraud. And that drives me nuts. Especially now. Like, so people are really under attack. I mean, people are having their most basic civil liberties taken away from them. So somebody needs to defend them. And you look around, well, whose job is that? Well, the people who got their positions because the people who are being attacked voted for them, those are their constituents. So they mm-hmm. should be defending them. I'm a, I'm a freaking cable news host. I have no power at all. I'm just a, you know, you know you've know you done the job. So yeah. I don't have any power. My only power is the ability to point this out. And I'm deeply frustrated by people shirking their duty in a time of crisis. And I believe it is a cri- an actual crisis. And so if there's a, cr- if the ship is going down, you have to help the weaker into the lifeboats first. That is your moral duty. And if you hop in a lifeboat and row away with open seats, you are a monster and you should be held to account for that. And that's how I feel. So in some sense, I matter at Lindsey Graham than I am at AOC, I mean, she's just a grifter trying to get ahead in a tough world, and she's succeeding. You know, I'm not mad at her, actually, mm-hmm. at all. I think she's got some talent. I disagree with everything she says. I think she's racially divisive, which I really hate. But I also recognize, you know, this is a talented person who is totally self-made. So I'm not—and she's also transparent. Like, you know who she is. I get it. Yeah. Lindsey Graham pretends to be one thing, but he's entirely another. I'm really bothered by that. Greg Abbott, I like. I'm not against Greg Abbott at all. I just, at this moment, he could fix the problem or help fix it, and he's not, and I just want to do all I can to encourage him to help fix it, because it needs to be fixed.
1: It's just such a 180 there. When he was talking to AOC, he said she's racially divisive, which is fun. <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, I think it means she's not white, and he can see her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh,
0: yeah,
2: like how do you charitably interpret that like he says this on
1: cable news god it was on an episode of his show maybe last week he was like uh you see people like rashida to in congress and you're pretty sure she's not on your side why, why do you feel that way tucker what makes you what makes yeah. you think <laughs> yeah and like uh, i i It's like
2: cringe lefty to defend AOC, but she is like the exact opposite of a grifter. She has a belief system and she abides by it. And then he talks about Lindsey Graham, who like ran against Trump in 2016 as the reasonable one, and then completely abandoned all of his principles to um, join the Trump cult. So he he fucking was a a hand puppet for Trump. (laughs) Seriously,
1: dude. And uh, and then it, he calls AOC a grifter. Like, fuck you. And then he even said, I'm not mad at her. Actually, she's completely self-made when on his show, whenever he talks about her, he bullshits about how she's not actually working class and she's lying about being self-made. So one of these things does not square with the other Tux. but it doesn't yeah, have to real. in his world. He can say whatever he wants and whenever he wants and it's fine. <laughs> And then he he's bewildered, Tyler, because something weird's going on with all these women.
3: I just don't get why they don't come on. So come on, so be a man, you know, right? be a, be a woman, stand up, take a few tough questions, even if it gets critical or contentious. I mean, good lord, they're politicians. It's like I don't totally understand it, but I agree with the calling well, it's only,
4: out. It's only women who come on, by the way. If, it, if that's one this other thing, which someday I'm gonna really get time to think through. But like, I asked my producer the other day. We try to highlight people who aren't going along with the bullshit, who are brave, who are standing up. We have them on. You know, some nurse who's like, I'm not going to be pushed around. Okay, great. Well, I said to my producer, we had this amazing nurse on the other day. This woman was so brave and clear speaking, clear thinking, just totally fearless. And I said to my producer, what percentage of these people, we have them on every week, have been women? And He goes, that's mm-hmm. an interesting question. Like, probably 90% of them? And That's great. I mean, I have three daughters and I'm, I couldn't be more pro-women. You know, I like women more than men. I always have, but you need men, too. Where are the men? Mm. And I asked my producer that. He's like, that's such a good question. I don't know. Where are the men? Like, why aren't the men standing up? And that's I don't know fascinating. Answers, but this is weird.
1: Uh, Megan Kelly goes on to theorize that it's because when you enforce mask mandates on kids, it wakes up Mama Bear. Um, <laughs> but. OK. Uh, it, uh, Tucker is just. I mean, I'm not upset that, but 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 where? But you need men too. Where are all the men? Because implying that women are doing men's jobs right now, and that's part of the problem. Um, that th- that is like the next thought that he wants you to have when he's talking about this.
2: Yeah, I thought he was going to go in a different direction. I thought he was like positioning himself as this
1: feminist because he has so many women on. Yeah, he he's kind of he's he's kind of trying to play in both fields a little bit. Yeah. Um and then after after Megan Kelly says something about like forcing vaccines on your kids, that's that's gonna piss women off. Tucker drops another little anecdote from his life here that I've not heard him talk about before. And now I really want to know more about. Yeah, I had a
4: child who was pretty badly hurt by a vaccine and years ago by a flu vaccine, and it was totally real. I had no idea. I grew up next to the Salk Institute in Jolla, and I'm I was totally pro-vaccine. I, I still am totally pro-vaccine. I've had a million vaccines, and so have my kids, including after this kid got hurt by the vaccine. But so I'm not I'm hardly an anti-vaxxer, just the opposite. I'm totally pro-science, pro-medicine, pro-vaccines. But you have to be allowed to say if there is a side effect of a medicine. You can't be pushed to deny the physical reality of the effect of a medicine. You just, that's that's crazy. That's Mm -hmm. total dark ages witchcraft stuff. Like, no. And the number of people who come to me and say, you know, I had this, or one of my children had this, or my spouse had this. I mean, there's a lot of it out there. And those people are attacked for being injured by something they were forced to take and called anti-vaxxers. Like, it's so grotesque. I don't, you know, I don't know what to say. I've done a couple shows on this, and, you know, I mean, they try to shut us down for saying that. Think about that. Yeah, They're trying to hurt you for explaining uh, as honestly as you can using federal statistics the harm rate from a medicine they're requiring. I mean, I'm trying not to use the F word on your show, but like, honestly, think of just like meditate on that for three minutes. This is what I think about in the sauna. I'm
1: like, this is just <laughs> too bad. Yeah. Right. It might do Tucker good to spend less time in the sauna. Perhaps and i know we talked
2: about this before but like all medication has risks associated with it so you weigh the risks against the risk of getting whatever disease it is and i almost feel like he's letting the mask slip a little bit he's like oh i i get all of my vaccines but it's just this one that i make an exception for for no reason (laughs)
1: yeah and when he talks about using the government's own data he's talking about bears data which we talked about is like it 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 serves an important function but it can't be used the way he's trying to use it it doesn't draw causal relationships yeah um i've never heard him talk about his kid being hurt by a vaccine before which it's it's one of those things like a lesser propagandist would absolutely use that story like if that's true he, he would be talking about that every goddamn night but tucker he, he he's yeah. a bit, he's got a bit more class than an alex jones i don't think tucker is interested in bringing <laughs> um in bringing that much of his personal life into it like he at the end of the day he's a storyteller he's got the story and then that's separate from whatever is really going on and that's important to keep in mind right So we have two more clips here, and uh, there's one more revelation that we're going to get out of this interview. But first, we have to hear these two meditate on the nature of change.
3: So let me ask you this. Um, I have I heard you say something like the one thing, you know, is a major change is coming, you know, between the big government takeover of our lives, big tech running everything. And yet we can't vote them out of office. We're stuck with these masters over whom we have no control. To the contrary, they control us. Um, and so we feel disempowered. Our leaders dividing us, taking away the fibers of patriotism and loving our country that used to bind us together, no matter our race, our gender, what have you just this growing frustration and and upset in the country. Um, And you say a major change is coming. What does that look like?
4: Well, you know, first of all, I mean, don't take my word for it. Watch the people in charge. They're terrified. This is how people behave when they're afraid. You know, if you're firmly in control of your sons, you don't screech at them. I mean, right? Because, you know, they respect you. Mm -hmm. And they know you're their mom. So, like, you don't need to, like, smack them in the face if they disobey. You can reason with them and be like, no, you know, we do it this way for this reason. I'm like, OK, mom, because you're in charge. You're their mom. So the second you start using force rather than reason, you are signaling that you have lost control. And you know you have. That's why you're doing it. You're becoming hysterical because your control is going away. So these people in charge now know their control is tenuous. That's why, you know, they're calling out the National Guard to enforce their stupid mandates. A, B, every action provokes an equal and opposite reaction. That's physics, but it's also human nature. So if you have massive change in a society, comes out of nowhere. You know, George Floyd dies. COVID arrives from China. Two facts in the past two years have completely, completely changed American society forever. They came out of nowhere. Nobody expected either one to happen. It happened like so quickly that most of us were caught completely unaware. That is such a huge change that we are going to have all kinds of equally huge reactions to it period this we know now the the shape of those reactions their nature you know that's not knowable we can only guess but where we are right now is where we are right now but again this is just a point on a continuum this country's going to look extremely different five years from now i mean that's just Mm -hmm. guaranteed and as one of my smartest friends said to me this is what it looks like when one system gives way to another and clearly that's True, I just don't know what the next system is. Um, I have my hopes, but I, I don't know. But it will not, you know, it's not like we're going back to 2004 1998, or or any other previous time in American history. Mm-hmm. We're going towards something new.
2: Okay. Uh speaking of racist dog whistles. <laughs> um people can't handle this much change. I I know I've heard uh Tucker make that argument before. I think he makes it a lot, but yeah. Um, and then he seems to be revolutionary sounding like we're going to have to go to war soon. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, dangerous.
1: That thing about this being one system giving way to another. He cribbed that from a, an Epic Times opinion piece, um, which is also kind of a cult, which we'll talk about sometime. <laughs> um, but uh, it's. I, I think the, the the thread that's worth following there is that Tucker seems to think that given the, the nature and the rate of change right now, we, we're headed toward some sort of significant change in the way that we're governed. Like he says that pretty explicitly. This is one system giving way to another, and what that system will be is unknowable. Um, and then he said, I have my hopes. It, we, we know how he hopes it shakes out. He hopes we end up looking a lot more like Hungary under Viktor Orban. Um, and I think that that's worth noting in that Tucker recognizes that th- there's the potential for societal change. And he t- to the extent that he's using his power as a, a popular cable news host to try and influence the course of those events... What he's trying to steer us toward, what he hopes we end up with on the other side of this, is a system that is less liberal and less democratic.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And when they first started talking, um, I felt like they're so close to having a good idea. They're like, oh, these really, really wealthy people and these really, really powerful companies are... um, Holding unelected power over our society, and like, yeah, that's a problem that I bet we agree on. <laughs> but, um, and like, I, I don't know what, um, what their solution is to that. Like, I know what my solution is: um, <laughs> democratize uh, the workplace and uh seize the means of production but that's not (laughs) that's definitely not their position you know right yeah it's
1: it's it's where we end up there all the time like okay if if we agree that that's a problem what do you advocate for like what's your solution they never have one yeah yeah um so then this is our last clip from this interview and I, i found this exchange fascinating
3: Un- untethered uh, from reality in too many circumstances, which is why I'm so happy to have you out there, Tucker. I mean, I haven't done all that many things that I feel really proud about, but w- saying Tucker Carlson really needs to be in the primetime of Fox News is definitely on the list. Well, Not that I'm responsible.
4: People, I mean, you. <laughs> there were a lot of people that didn't want me to get the job, but you made all the difference because at that point, you know, you were by far the most powerful person on our air, and. Uh, and the person they listen to the most carefully. So to have out of nowhere, I should just say, for our audience, I I certainly didn't expect you to go to bat for me. I was like, what? Um, I still have no idea why you did that, but it was obvious because
3: you're such a talent. I mean, it was like if you're just paying attention, it was obvious you you were able to understand Trump before anybody. Your analysis is always so well informed, so well read, so spot on and not like everybody else's. It's not like just talking points that you'd pick up off the Internet. And now we know why, by the way, (laughs) he doesn't go on the Internet. Um, No, just so always affable and rooting for others. And I still see you that way. Grateful to know you, to call you a friend and to be able to tune into your show every night tucker thank you so much
1: thanks a million megan this has been wonderful so to hear them tell it megan kelly got tucker his job interesting so uh we we can all we can all breathe a sigh of relief and thank megan i guess (laughs) (laughs) thank you
2: megan for forcing us to create a podcast to
1: dissect all of tucker's bullshit <laughs> <laughs> yeah now when somebody asks us why did you do a podcast for tucker Carlson, we're gonna be like because of goddamn megan kelly <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: true <laughs> all right then that is all i got yeah that was, was a very revealing interview for sure yeah i think we learned a lot about tucker um and we'll be back and like I said, we we've got some dark shit ahead. We've got we're gonna do this Cur- this Curtis Yarvin thing. We're gonna talk about Charles Murray and scientific racism. And we're gonna talk about a whole bunch about Glenn Beck and George Soros and Roger Ailes. Um, and we'll we'll probably have to talk at some point about bisexual Superman. <laughs> <laughs> you can cross your fingers, Troy, but I don't think it's gonna come up. <laughs> <laughs> i'm frankly just disappointed that i can no longer go by my nickname the bisexual superman
2: uh, as as everyone in your life knows you by bisexual superman <laughs> truly you're gonna have to get this tattoo covered up <laughs> no you can be the original and then, and then we have this poser this new poser
1: this a new nice money poser Superman. yeah <laughs> all right so we'll be back with all that and more uh, but in the meantime we've got a website it's Um, you can email the show at um, No, nope. at, G- at gmail yep pod at gmail.com is the email at pod yep. is the twitter where we also are and most of what we do is just repost greg kelly tweets <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, there's our Facebook group, Woker Reached Us. Um, yep, yeah, um, you can support us on Patreon, as many f- lovely people already do. Yet yeah, many of the best people in the world, truly. As, I say as I have a unpaid parking ticket sitting literally inches away from me. <laughs> Damn it, Troy! What did you where did you park? I, I, I was not. I was going to therapy and I wasn't and I was running late and turns out that I was seeing like the back and the front of two separate parallel parking spots and they didn't actually comprise a spot. Um oh. because they were in front of a drive. So Oh uh- <laughs> <I'll> Troy. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay. You're a funny guy, Troy. <laughs> so I'll go pay my fucking parking ticket. Um, good idea. And uh, we'll be don't back with another episode- We'll be back with another episode on Monday. In the meantime, don't watch Tucker's show, I'll do it for you and try to enjoy your life. Thanks for listening. Buck up, it's gonna get better.